Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are very pleased to have with us today Professor Matt Goldish. Professor Goldish earned his BA from the University of California and holds a PhD from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Professor Goldish serves as the Samuel M. and Esther Melton Chair in Jewish History at Ohio State University. And Professor Goldish is a specialist in Jewish and European history with interest in Messianism, Jewish-Christian intellectual relations, and Sephardic studies. Professor Goldish has published Judaism in the Theology of Sir Isaac Newton, The Sabbatean Prophets, Spirit, Possession, in Judaism. And today we will be discussing Jewish questions, response on Sephardic life in the early modern period. Um, it is a wonderful book, uh, insightful, entertaining, with great stories, responsa, that we'll get into today and urge our viewers and listeners, as I do, did simply go on to Amazon, click a button, free delivery anywhere in the world, and um, it's really a wonderful book. Professor Goldish, thank you so much um, for being with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, just to get started, this is kind of a, a broad question. Um, response on Sephardic life. How would you define Sephardic and what are Sephardic responses? It's trickier than it seems. Uh, I remember being at a conference a number of years ago where um, uh, a large part of the conference was um, discussing the question of who are Sephardim and who they aren't. Uh, technically, uh, or in, in terms of uh, kind of traditional definitions, being Sephardim meant being a Jew from the Iberian Peninsula, from somewhere in what we now define as Spain or Spain and Portugal. But uh, as uh, Jonathan Ray and some other people have pointed out, those uh, Jews probably didn't use the term very often. Uh, they they did use it, the Rambam uses it, other people use it, but uh, it was really when they left or when they were expelled in 1492, forcibly converted in 1497 in Portugal and then escaped the Iberian Peninsula, that's when people really uh, start needing an appellation for these people. And um, so for my purposes, uh, Sephardim are people whose origins uh, are in the Iberian Peninsula, but they might be found after 1492 or even after 1391 in North Africa, in um, uh, the Ottoman Empire, all over the place, uh, various parts of Europe, uh, and even in the Americas. Uh, but they trace their origins back to Spain uh, and or Portugal. Uh, the current usage, you will hear people referring to everybody who's not an Ashkenazi as a Sephardi, uh, and it's very problematic. Um, in Israel, they've created this category called Edot Mizrach, which is also a problematic uh, grouping because uh, somebody who comes from Afghanistan is completely different from somebody who comes from uh, North Africa, who is completely different from a Yemenite, uh, and many of the people who are thrown into that category, um, right, uh, kind of resent that the, there's this catch-all category for everybody who's not Ashkenazi, which is a very Ashkenazi-centric way of looking at things. So I'm not going to address the way that the, the problems that, that we have now with this this category of uh, Sephardi or Edot Mizrach. For my purposes, it's people who trace their origins back to Spain or Portugal, uh, even in the early modern period that I deal with, roughly 1450 to 1750, it becomes a problem because, for example, uh, a lot of Sephardim including, for example, the Ramban, um, end up in um, or, or spend time in North Africa. And uh, in North Africa, there are already Jews who are not Sephardim. Uh, there are 
Berber Jews and there are um, various uh, various uh, people uh, who have been living in those places sometimes for a very long time. And the Sephardim come and they have this very strong culture. And in many cases, their culture just washes over the local Jewish culture. And so everybody just becomes kind of Spartified, if I could say that. Uh, other places, there's a clash. Uh, other places in North Africa, there are Toshavim, they're the original inhabitants and the Sephardim, and they're, they're at loggerheads with each other. Um, so it is a, a complicated category, and I just do my best. If people are, uh, if people speak some version of a, a Spanish uh, language or dialect, um, and they trace themselves, or at least part of their ancestry, back to Spain or Portugal, um, they are Sephardim for me. And um, uh, Sephardi Chachamim, Sephardi rabbis, it's a little bit easier because uh, uh, you, you look at somebody's last name, you look at the tradition out of which they come and where they were trained, and uh, not so hard to identify who's a, a Sephardi, perhaps, in that case. Okay. Um, as you said, Professor Goldish, uh, you're, you're covering a period um, which is the early modern period, 450, 1500 to 1750. What is the state of Sardi Jewry, again, generally speaking, during that period? Is there a difference between Western Sardi Jewry and Eastern Sardi Jewry? Okay, this is a big one. So, first of all, we know that starting in 1391, in particular, when there were a lot of anti-Jewish riots across, again, what is now Spain, across the Iberian Peninsula, uh, there was a, a lot of pressure on um, Sephardic Jews to convert to Christianity. And that culminated in 1492, when the Jews were expelled from Spain, uh, many of them escaped to Portugal, uh, which is uh, also on the Iberian Peninsula, very close to Spain, and has a similar language where they were promised uh, that they would be left alone, but they weren't. And in 1497, that whole community essentially was forcibly converted uh, to, uh, to Christianity. Uh, so that was the situation in uh, the Iberian Peninsula in Spain and Portugal uh, up to 1492. Uh, and as you can imagine, after 1492 uh, and 1497 in particular, there are many, many conversos, that is to say converted Jews uh, who are living uh, forcibly or more or less forcibly, some by choice, uh, as Catholics in Spain and Portugal. Uh, and uh, some of those people are uh, always trying to leave. Some of them uh, assimilate okay, but the Inquisition is at work and it's always a threat. So some of those people are always trying to leave. And um, uh, there's always a trickle of those people leaving all the way into the 18th century uh, of uh, conversos leaving and trying to uh, go to other places in Western Europe where there's no Inquisition. Um, when they do escape and go other places, not just Western Europe, but uh, uh, Ottoman Empire, North Africa, uh, the land of Israel, uh, when they do escape, some of them continue to live as Catholics. Uh, so, for example, southern France, which is just over the, the mountains from northern Spain, um, has a very large number of people who are almost certainly descendants of conversos, but they have been Catholics for the, you know, for 500 years. Um, these people, these conversos, might go any kind of place uh, and uh, remain living as Catholics. They might um, join a Jewish community that exists. Uh, they might start their own Jewish community. So we'll put those people, as as my rabbi, Rabbi Blau says, we'll put that uh, point in advance for a moment uh, and get back to the actual Jews. So uh, many Jews, uh, maybe half of them, uh, leave Spain uh, in 1492. They go to uh, various places in the Ottoman Empire, in North Africa um, and uh, Italy. And uh, 
it takes quite a while. It takes really a generation for them to kind of find a place to go and settle down. Many of them die uh, on the way. There uh, are diseases that uh, run rampant. There, uh, many of them end up uh, trying to go to a community that, that can't uh, accept them. They, they're not able to absorb more Jews for uh, political reasons and whatever. Uh, they're left high and dry, different places. Um, a lot of them go back. They find that they have no place to go, no place will accept them. Uh, a really considerable number of them uh, go back. Uh, my friend David Gord has written a very interesting book about the ones who, who return, uh, and other people have written about that. Uh, but a considerable number of them manage to settle, especially in the Ottoman Empire, North Africa, Italy. And um, those people uh, generally uh, are absorbed into those communities. Uh, and uh, that is what we refer to as the Eastern Sephardi diaspora, the diaspora of, of Sephardic Jews who go to uh, those, uh, those lands and are reabsorbed into the community. Uh, over time, uh, when you get toward the end of the 16th century, the people who are managing to escape the conversos, right, that we were talking about before, managed to escape from Spain or Portugal. Uh, it's probably very uncomfortable for them as adults, as people who have been living as Catholics, sometimes for three, four generations. Uh, many of them are uh, successful uh, business people because they don't have any limitations on them the way Jews used to. Uh, they um, uh, they are uncomfortable going to existing Jewish communities. They've never practiced Judaism uh, per se. They might have practiced some crypto Jewish practices, some attempts to remember what it was like, but they they don't know how to operate in a Jewish community. It's very uncomfortable for them. Also, uh, there are these new Atlantic uh, oriented trade centers in Europe. And some of these people are very interested in being involved in the Atlantic trade as well as Mediterranean trade. And um, so some of these escaping conversos go to places like Antwerp, uh, Amsterdam, London, Livorno, um, Bayonne, Bordeaux, uh, and uh, Hamburg. And um, they, um, they go there as outward Catholics and they continue to keep up an outward Catholic identity, but they create sort of secret Jewish conventicles in these places, secret Jewish cells. Uh, and some of them, right? Certainly not all of them, but some of them want to practice Judaism. And uh, the long and short of it is that over time, their secret comes out. And uh, even though these are places, right, London, Amsterdam, these are places where Jews are not allowed to live, they're not allowed to be there. But uh, a few of these people are very important and successful merchants uh, who bring a lot of tax revenue uh, into their uh, adopted countries. And so uh, the decision is made, not in Antwerp, but in Amsterdam and London and Hamburg and so on, to either ignore the fact that these people are practicing Judaism or to accept them as Jews and to allow them to stay. So that is what is called the Western Sephardi diaspora. The Western Sephardi diaspora is made up more or less entirely of people whose origins are from conversos, uh, people who had been practicing Catholicism in the Iberian Peninsula for usually multiple generations. As my teacher, uh, Josef Kaplan has pointed out, for many of these people, the community that they create, the Jewish community in Amsterdam, London, and uh, Hamburg, is the first Jewish community they have ever seen in their lives. Uh, and so they have a lot to learn about how to be Jewish. So that's kind of the, I know that was a long-winded answer. No, that's, a, that's fine. That's very good. Um, the whole genre of responsive. Um, what are the different schools of thought in how responsive uh, the questions and the answers that are that are sent or submitted to to rabbinical figures? How do they help us understand 
Jewish history, the, the different approaches, and then your approach, which you bring out obviously in the book, um, as to how response to teach us um, elucidate Jewish history for us. So let me describe three different uses, and they're not in competition with each other. They're just, these are different ways people have used them. For a very long time, um, since the 19th century, certainly, uh, scholars of Jewish history uh, and Jewish thought have used responsa uh, on an ad hoc basis uh, as a way of um, informing themselves and their readers about Jewish life. Uh, here is a tshuva responsum about uh, how things were done in Saloniki and Salonika in Greece uh, in the 16th century. We'll bring that in, uh, in addition to other sources to show uh, how uh, people lived their lives, how uh, things were done, things like that, right? On a sort of individual ad hoc basis. Uh, there were a few people who wrote uh, books or, or dissertations in which they tried to uh, talk about the life of a whole community based on one particular collection of responsa, uh, Rashdam or uh, wh whoever it might be, right, as a, as a point of view to understand a whole community. Uh, but most often kind of ad hoc individual responsa that throw light on a, on a place or situation. Then uh, there are people who use them the way uh, my friend Jay Berkowitz does, who's written brilliant work on the community of Mets based on the uh, archives of their Beit um, Din and also uses responsa. And he is interested in the rabbis. He is interested in seeing how the rabbis uh, adjudicate, uh, how they balance Jewish law and uh, let's say merchant law or other, other types of um, uh, uh, legal uh, platforms, uh, how how they make it all work, uh, what their point of view is, uh, what the differences are between Abate Din, what they do when they uh, when they clash with each other, and so on. So more about the the history of law and and uh, and adjudication. So that's a different use. I'm really interested, particularly in the questions, uh, more than in the answers, because. Uh, I'm, I'm approaching this from a social history standpoint for the most part. Uh, I want to know what life was like. And response are brilliant for that because uh, they combine the point of view of a rabbi who is responding uh, and sometimes editing the question with what the person asking the question has to say. Sometimes you have uh, the actual voice of some ordinary person that you would never know anything about from any other source, but because that person gave testimony before a Beit Din, before the court, about, for example, a person who has disappeared and, and uh, his wife is, uh, uh, wants to know uh, whether she can remarry, uh, that type of thing. So you, there are witnesses that come in. Sometimes the testimony is given in Spanish, Sometimes it's given in Arabic, um, and uh, it's it's you're really hearing word for word pretty much the voice of this person coming through the centuries that would otherwise be completely unknown. So popular culture, ordinary people, and when people testify, they wander, they tell about things that don't have anything to do with the case. It's fantastic material for a historian to learn about people's lives and about their points of view and their concerns and their religious uh, uh, thoughts and so on. So uh, there's uh, there's that aspect. Uh, there also, as you mentioned uh, in your very kind opening words, um, there's what amounts to sort of folkloristic aspects where people uh, couch their question in the form of a story. Uh, a, a typical sheila often starts maaseh hayakachaya, or maaseh hayakachaya. Right? They, here, here's what happened, and then they launch into a narrative, and you, you have uh, sometimes autobiographical pieces in there. Sometimes you have stories. Sometimes you have uh, people just 
wandering around, you know, through the narrative, uh, talking about bits of everyday life as they lead up to the point that they want to make. Um, so that's that's what I was interested in, the sort of social history uh, and the, 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 the voices of the past coming through, especially of poorer people and uh, non-literate people that we would never otherwise hear from. Um, so now we'll get to some examples. Um, again, I, I, I picked a few and um, just the ones that just, I, I thought had great titles and, you know, really no particular order to it. And um, we'll, we'll find out which are your favorites and why I think it was with 41 examples, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, something like that. <laughs> something like that, okay. Uh, um, you know, why those the, the titles are all mine. I made those all up. You made those up. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. so here, here, here's a response of the financial fallout of a blood libel, Ragusa, Sicily, 1622. Very briefly, what's the case and what do we learn about libels, uh, reporting fellow Jews to the authorities, Jewish trade at the time? So first of all, Ragusa is a real interesting place. If you picture Italy, right, the boot sticking out from uh, the rest of Europe, and you picture the back of the leg, right, the back of the boot. So uh, that is what's called the Adriatic coast of Italy. And uh, it is next to the Adriatic Sea, which is a sort of a finger of the Mediterranean. And on the other side, the coast on the uh, other side across from Italy, across the Adriatic, is the Adriatic coast uh, of, of the, the Balkan states. And that's where Ragusa was, uh, now called uh, Dubrovnik. And uh, it was a very important uh, trading post. You can imagine that uh, people are buying and selling in the Mediterranean who want to bring their goods to Europe. They go up the Adriatic uh, uh, sea, and usually, uh, most typically, they'll end up in Venice at the very top of that uh, finger of the uh, of the Mediterranean. But uh, there were two ports in particular uh, along the way that people used a lot. That was uh, Split or Spalato and Ragusa or Dubrovnik. Uh, and so this is a story that happens in um, in Dubrovnik in Ragusa. Uh, quite early, 1622, uh, for that community. And um, there's a sort of a scandal. Somebody reports, uh, claims that there's uh, a blood libel. Um, I should have gone over it before talking to you because I don't, I don't remember all the details. But essentially, uh, what, you, uh, what you have there is uh, a lot of tension within the Jewish community uh, out of fear of the um, non-Jewish authorities, uh, because um, any Jew uh, who steps forward and tells the authorities that X happened, uh, the authorities don't know whether that person's telling the truth or, or not, and uh, they're very likely to either uh, accept spurious uh, claims by somebody in, a, in an argument or to make them up themselves, as uh, as happened here, I think. And um, it, so any time the intra-Jewish tensions spill over and are reported to the, um, the, the legal authorities, the non-Jewish authorities, you have the potential for disastrous outcomes. And that's what happened here. People had to flee from the community out of fear that they would be accused of uh, these uh, heinous crimes. You have uh, people who caused this disaster and um, others who want to know who's responsible, who's responsible, who's financially responsible for, for all this, um, this fallout. Uh, and this, this happens, unfortunately, uh, I mean, it's not common, but it, it it, uh, it shows up in these sources a number of times where uh, so something, um, some situation within the Jewish community uh, spills over and is kind of grabbed by the authorities and used as a wrench uh, to um, extract money from the Jews, to uh, force them to convert, uh, whether that's to Christianity or to Islam. 
uh, or um, uh, put a scare in them, uh, force them to uh, to do whatever it is that the authorities want. So um, it's a it's a very unpleasant situation and some somewhat embarrassing to read about, but um, we're we're trying to get at the reality. Yeah. Um, the response of the death of Tal Aslan. This is Aleppo, yes. Turkey, in sixteen eighty one, and this uh, deals with uh, something you mentioned before a uh, a a wife, a woman who uh, whose husband has disappeared or can't be found and is now in Aguna. Um, what was that stance towards that particular issue, and what else comes out from that particular response? Okay. So the Tal Aslan case is one of, one of my favorite ones. Um, it's, it's part of a, a sort of a subgenre, which, uh, meaning no disrespect whatsoever, but, uh, I refer to it as the dead husband cases, right? These are the, the Agunot cases, the straw widows who, uh, uh, grass widows, right? That's the term, right? Agunot, who, uh, they need a confirmation, uh, and, and there's, uh, of course, in halacha, there are very specific uh, requirements about who can bear witness and what kind of testimony can be accepted uh, to prove that uh, a person has died uh, in order that uh, right, a, a man has died in order that his widow can, uh, can go and remarry. So uh, those are some of the most interesting cases because uh, you, you have people stepping up to testify. And this is one of those cases, right? The, this Tal Aslan was a merchant and uh, he was traveling somewhere far, far from home uh, in the Mediterranean region. He was with uh, one or two other merchants and uh, they were essentially um, uh, drowned uh, in, a, in the sea or in the river. And, um, and so a, a bunch of people come forward to testify about what they saw. And this is one of those cases where the testimony takes a, a little bit to get to the point of the story. And they tell about the travels and where they spent Shabbat and what happened. And uh, I believe this is the case where somebody says, oh, Talaslan, he was, um, he was a really great Jew. Uh, other Jews, right, they go to the shuk and they buy their meat from whoever and we come and cook it all together and we eat together. But this Tal Aslan, he was very careful and he wouldn't buy, you know, non-kosher meat and, and so on. It, wow, uh, there's some information about what their life was like that uh, maybe I wasn't expecting. So bits like that that just come out um, and the, the circumstances of his death and so on. Um and and this test this testimony is from Jews and non-Jews that, that so the court is listening to? The the court does not normally speak to a non-Jewish person uh at court, or at least we don't have uh, records of that. Usually what you have is uh a Jew who has spoken to a non-Jewish person who gives testimony what's called Mesiach de Fitumo, which is uh, the Jew does not prompt the person uh, uh, to, to, to say what they saw or what they experienced. That person brings it up, him or herself, and, uh, and talks about what they saw. And that can be acceptable, uh, even though it's secondhand and, and uh, coming from this other person, the Beit Din can, can sometimes accept it. And, I will say that the Bate Din, unfortunately, right, in the pre-modern period, uh, people died uh, in all kinds of circumstances. Jews tended to be very footloose. Many of them were not big international merchants, but people who carried, a, a, you know, a box or a bag or uh, whatever and, and traveled in caravans. And unfortunately, it was dangerous all the time. And Jews there were, there were a number of cases in the book and in the Chuvot all over the place of Jews who died, this place or that place. And uh, so these Aguno cases are, are all over. And the rabbis couldn't have, uh, you know, these huge numbers of, of women uh, sitting around, uh, not remarried because they're being so mocked, so careful about which testimony we accept. They tend to be quite... Uh, 
I don't want to say liberal, that's not the word, but they are open to any kind of testimony which can possibly fit the parameters of the halacha and free up a, a grass widow uh, so she can remarry. And so you see in the testimony uh, all kinds of uh, reports, secondhand reports, uh, some of them, again, from a sort of folkloristic point of view or a uh, autobiographical point of view, very fascinating and very revealing about Jewish-Muslim relations, sometimes Jewish-Christian relations, uh, all in the service of getting to the story about how the person that's under question died and who witnessed it and did somebody see the body after they drowned and so on, which is what you have in this Tal Aslan case. The uh, tale of the clothier and the vizier, Constantinople, 1641, um, Jewish roles in the royal courts of power. What do we see from that response? Oh, yeah, that is that is probably my favorite out of the whole collection, partly because the story is just so uh, it's such a narrative. It's told in such a style that I think I mentioned in my introduction, it almost seems like uh, out of the, the thousand and one nights, uh, you know, the, the stories that wanders from this point to that. Um, I want to say that uh, my colleague at the Hebrew University, Yaron Ben Na'eh, wrote uh, a, a very important article, what I think he, he, he could have made it into, into a book, uh, su such rich material about um, Sephardic court Jews long before there were Ashkenazi court Jews, or at least somewhat before, um, there were Sephardim who were important court Jews who uh, served various viziers and, and uh, uh, the sultans of the Ottoman Empire and the various um, governors of, of the, uh, the states uh, under a Muslim control, uh, many of these people. And so this is a story about one of those people. This is a man who uh, back in, um, in Istanbul, which the Jews continue to call Kushtar or Constantinople, uh, he has a store. It's a store in the Shuk, whatever. Uh, there was no Walmart, right? You couldn't go to uh, to Walmart or to Target and and walk in and find everything you need in one place and buy it. It's uh, right little stores, each one having the special uh, merchandise that that person was able to get, and some were better, some were not as good at getting the interesting merchandise. And this man had a store where he had some nice stuff, and. Uh, this uh, uh, officer from the uh, from the government used to come in and buy all his stuff from this guy. He liked, I don't know what, the cloths that he had for his wife and the jewelry and I don't know what all. So uh, this man uh, rose up in the government and became uh, ever more successful. And um, he... Um, he continued to buy from this man until he was uh, he became a very important figure in the government. And he took this man that he had met from his little store in the Shuk, and he made him uh, his uh, sarafashi, his, his, the head of his household, in charge of buying everything that he needed for the household. And eventually the man is uh, given a, a super important post. Oh, before that happens, the guy, uh, right, he takes a dive. The, um, the sultan or whoever it is, uh, feels that this man has been implicated in some scandal. I don't know what it is. And it looks like he's going down, right? He's exiled and his Jewish uh, uh, merchant uh, servant, uh, he, he doubles down. He gives the guy stuff, food and clothes and so on to take with him into exile and so on. It could have, it could have been a complete bust. This man might have died in exile and, uh, this this merchant would have been out everything, uh, but it doesn't happen that way uh, for whatever reason. And again, we have no idea why. But the governor, or the vizier, uh, the, or the, um, the the sultan uh, reverses his decision about this uh, officer and brings him back. 
and he is thrilled with his Jew. The Jew stood by him when everybody else abandoned him. His Jew stood by him and supplied him with what he needed on credit, of course, right? Because the man's uh, fortunes had been destroyed. And now he's back and this Jew is in his good graces. The man is appointed to be the governor of Egypt. And of course he brings the Jew along and the Jew is at the top of his game, right? Supplying the governor of Egypt and, and overseeing his household. Uh, but now another Jew tries to horn in on the action, right? He wants to be uh, the uh, Sarafashi uh, for this guy and uh, supply the household with, uh, with the things and make a ton of money. And he gets in good with other people at court and they support the other guy. And this guy is furious because he went through so much to support this, this governor. And the two Jews, right, the, 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 the rest of the uh, Sheila, the West, rest of the question is about these, these two Jews uh, jockeying for position at court and, and uh, the, the various um, compromises and fights and so on that they have about who is going to oversee that household. Uh, so the story is just told in a... Uh, a leisurely and, uh, and and fascinating way. And one of the reasons that it may be is that when a book of Sheilot Chuvot, a book of uh, rabbinic responsa, uh, was published back in the 16th or 17th centuries, of course, the purpose of it wasn't for some future historian to read the stories. There was no such thing as a historian, right? Uh, it was for... Uh, rabbis and uh, Talmud students to study the case as a, a, as case law to see how the rabbi adjudicated the case. So typically what they would do is they would shorten the question to the minimum elements, uh, often taking out names and places and so on. And it would be truncated because the question wasn't the important part. It just needed the elements that would be relevant to the halakhic decision. This uh, book, uh, this volume of Rabbi Yoshua Benvenisti, uh, the brother of, of uh, Rabbi Chaim Benvenisti, the famous uh, uh, Knesset Sagadola. Uh, so these were uh, found relatively recently in manuscript. And of course, when modern people publish these books, they recognize the value of the whole, uh, the whole work, and, and it all goes in. And so you have, in many cases, not in every case, but in many cases, a much fuller narrative, a much fuller version of the question that was asked. So those are particularly useful for the historian. Um, Polish fugitives in Egypt, late 17th century. Um, this involves um, a bills of divorce. And I guess we're talking about Poland and we're talking about the Sephardi community. What comes out of this particular response? So that's that's some crazy stuff. Uh, anybody who's interested in the background of this, the background is what's called Gzeros Tachetach, the Khmelnytsky uh, the uh, uprising and massacres in the Ukraine and Poland in 1648-49, which were followed by uh, a Swedish invasion of Poland and uh, Russians and, uh, right, uh, terrible times for the Jews in those regions uh, and lots of slaughter. Uh, uh, excellent book about this by Adam Teller um, uh, that, uh, that really goes into the, the, the um, essentially the refugee crisis and, 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 and other related refugee crises around that time. Um, so we know that many people running away from these uh, invasions and, and the, the Cossacks and so on, many of them went to Western Europe. Uh, we have, uh, for example, works that were published, works that we have on the Shulchan Aruch and uh, um, uh, commentaries on, on uh, the Gemara and so on that were published in Western Europe that we know were brought there by people who were escaping these uh, disasters. And, and came to Germany or France or the Netherlands. Uh, we certainly uh, know about that. Um, it turns out that some of these people went way further 
And in this case, what happened is that a bunch of women uh, escaping these, um, these invasions and so on, presumably got on a boat, ended up in Egypt. So uh, here you are in a, uh, an environment which must have been so foreign to them. They're Jews and they go to the Jewish community. Uh, so they're Jews with other Jews, but these are Ashkenazi Jews whose entire culture, certainly Yiddish and Ashkenazi, um, uh, being absorbed into a community of uh, Sephardim in North Africa and Egypt. And they are Agudot also. Their husbands are back in Poland or the Ukraine, and um, they, they have no idea what happened to them. So they hire an agent to go back to Poland to find their husbands and to uh, uh, achieve a get, to get a, um, a divorce from uh, the husbands, each of them, her, her respective husband. Uh, and this is extremely tricky. Uh, Poland is in chaos. The wars, the death, the uh, everything else. Plus, Ashkenazi Jews, right? Uh, you know Ashkenazi Jews. They have last names like, uh, you know, Goldstein or Lieberman, you know, or whatever it might be, right? These these Ashkenazi last names. Now, nobody had last names then. It was Chaim Ben Yanko uh, or whatever it was, right? So this uh, this shaliach, this um, agent, is is going around Poland trying to find the husbands of these women, and it's almost impossible. First of all, the the chaos. Second of all, he doesn't know quite where to go. Right, nobody's back in their hometowns anymore. Everybody's spread out all over the place, and he can't identify who's who. He needs to get a divorce from uh, Yasel Ben Yankel. Uh, he finds two hundred Yasel Ben Yankels. Right, which one is it? He doesn't know. Right. So it's a very, uh, very messy uh, situation uh, that ends up uh, and you, your heart goes out to these women and to, and to their husbands uh, and, to, and to everybody who went through this uh, horror. Uh, but it's also very revealing, very interesting. Um, you're, uh, you know, these Ashkenazi women who end up in, in Egypt uh, and um, you know, how, how, how they're going to negotiate their, their, their terrible situation. This is a very small group. No, there wasn't a Polish community in, in Egypt, a separate Polish community. We're talking about a small group of women. Yes, I would assume, I would assume it's a small group, a handful. Okay, got it. Okay. Um, you touched upon this uh, a bit before, but uh, this response was... Um, Jews becoming Karaites and Karaites yeah. becoming Jews again, Egypt, late 17th century. And we're touching now about Jewish attitudes towards Karaites, of course, and what you spoke about before, Professor Goldish, Jewish attitudes towards conversos. So, right, these are two very different situations, uh, but uh, they have certain things in common indeed. So, at Karaites, so this is a very, very tricky halachic problem. Karaites, uh, whose origins may have been already among the tzedukim of the Second Temple period, but are recognizable as a group starting around the 8th century uh, of the Common Era. Uh, these are people who, in one way or the other, and my, my colleagues who work in this field will be horrified by my, my casual and and, and messy description of who they are, but essentially uh, the overall concept is that they are uh, critical of or reject uh, in one degree or the other, the oral law tradition, the Talmud and, and the, the literatures that go with it, and uh, attempt to uh, live according to a biblical law. That's why they are called Karaites from the Hebrew root Kufresh Aleph Kra, meaning the Bible, the Torah. So uh, they um, they are the subject of uh, a lot of rabbinic polemic and controversy. Of course, Rav Sadia Gaon is writing uh, against them, and then a whole series of uh, of polemics occurring, and they. Um, 
uh, right all, all through the, the Middle Ages uh, into the High Middle Ages, they have communities, uh, especially in Egypt. They have a strong community. They have communities other places. And uh, they continue as a significant uh, group uh, kind of at least intellectually on the margins of the Jewish community uh, right into the early modern period. Now, here's the problem. And it's a problem that you would have with conversos, with Karaites, and in our day, they have it with the Ethiopian Jews, which is this. If you have a group of people who identify as Jews, but do not have or do not adhere to the oral law, that is to say the Talmudic tradition, there is a problem about divorces. Uh, there is a Masechta Gitin in the Babylonian Talmud that gives detailed instructions about how to write a writ of divorce, a get, and it is quite complicated. It has to be done, done just so. And uh, if people are... Uh, if people are not adhering to those uh, standards because they either don't have a Talmud, uh, don't know about the Talmud, uh, don't believe in the Talmud, whatever the reason, right, then there is a chazaka, an assumption, a legal assumption that uh, over the centuries uh, in any given family, somebody has gotten divorced. And if they got divorced and they didn't have a proper kosher get, uh, a proper writ of divorce, then the woman is going to go and get remarried to somebody else without being technically divorced from her first husband. And what that means is the children she has from the new marriage are going to be mamzerim, which is uh, children who are the result of an Isar Kares relationship, a relationship that was forbidden by the Torah, uh, according to certain uh, particular uh, parameters and standards. Um, Mamzerim in halacha are a disaster. It is almost impossible to help them uh, attain any kind of uh, a meaningful uh, legal status within the Jewish community. It's horrible. So um, the choices are really uh, right for the rabbis the choices kind of go two directions one is that you declare that this group of people is not really jewish not jewish for whatever reason uh and there are various ways to to kind of do that uh and then they can convert into judaism and there's no problem uh about the uh the the and the the uh uh, the divorce uh, situation. But uh, a lot of the people we're talking about either clearly are uh, direct descendants of Jews and therefore technically Jews, uh, or, uh, for example, in the case of the Ethiopian Jews in our days, uh, it is so unbelievably offensive uh, to tell a group of people who have suffered for hundreds of years uh, or longer uh, for being Jewish, that they're not really Jewish, right? Even if it's only on a technicality, but you just can't do that, right? Uh, and so there are very messy situations with all these people. Uh, and um, so the other choice of the rabbis is to try and, and figure out a way to negotiate this problem within uh, the, the Jewish world and the, and the parameters of halacha. Now, I... I am sure that uh, uh, Professor Danny Lasker uh, or uh, my my colleague here at Ohio State, Professor Daniel Frank, and the other experts on the Karaites could probably explain this in great detail. Uh, but um, somehow, uh, for a long time and right into the 16th century, Karaites married freely with Jews. Uh, there apparently, at least for most uh, post-Kim, for most halachic decisors, it was not a problem. Um, they, um, uh, they, they intermarried with Jews and, and nobody, um, nobody had an issue about it. Uh, later they did. Um, when I was at UCLA as an undergraduate student, a friend of mine found himself uh, to be uh, roommates with a guy that he met who was hanging out at the Chabad house. 
uh, and uh, the guy was becoming more religious and so on. And uh, in some casual conversation, he asked uh, this new friend uh, where he came from, or where his family was from. And uh, he explained that his family was some kind of interesting Jews he didn't really know much about from Egypt called Karaites. And uh, this friend of mine, uh, he, he, he talked to our, our rabbis at Eula, who contacted Baba Badi and Lakewood. Like there was a whole thing about what to do about this. Um, back then, apparently, it wasn't considered a problem. And it's not clear to me why that is. Um, the conversos were usually dealt with in the following way. If somebody's ancestry could be traced closely enough, right? So in other words, when it was shortly after the expulsion or after the family had been converted, then uh, they, they were just absorbed back into the community. But if it was later on, let's say you're talking about the later 16th century, there was apparently, we know very little about this because there are very few records about this left, but apparently there was a sort of a pro forma conversion uh, into Judaism that was done and that way uh, no um, and no kind of uh, um, pro problem with the, the history of divorces in the family would occur. Without getting too political on, on the topic of Ethiopians, um, from from your research on Sephardi responsa, is is there a difference between Sephardi responsa and Ashkenazic responsa as it relates to these kinds of Karaites, conversos, Ethiopians, as we know, I think Abadi Yosef uh, gave up sock and Ethiopians were mainstream, right? And they were fine. Is there a difference at all? Is that we find that at all without, you know, without getting too political here? <laughs> I hesitate. I okay. hesitate to say anything about this, but I will say, uh, and I, I, while I have read any number of, of uh, works of Sheilot Tshuvot of Ashkenazim, also, uh, I, I have focused much more on the Sephardim. Uh, I, my sense is that the Sephardi poskim are very practical. They, um, uh, they recognize when there is elasticity in the law you don't have briskers among the uh uh you know among the sephardim you don't have people who are trying to be yotze all shitas you know or or uh, whatever this type of thing is right they they're practical they recognize that they are dealing with human beings so, so do the, the ashkenazi postgame and the italian postgame don't get me wrong but i feel that the the sephardim uh really uh I kind of recognize the human cost of uh, uh, certain decisions, and they are willing to use the the breadth uh, in the halacha uh, to um, to to help people. Having said that, uh, there are other cases where they they feel that there is not uh, elasticity in the halacha, and they make decisions which must have been very painful, but they they are being uh, honest and true to their understanding of, uh, of the law. Today, um, we see um, support for Israel from evangelicals, Christian Zionists. We have organizations that raise money from Christians and support various institutions. And there's all kinds of hubbaloos, all kinds of uh, responses to that. Should we take the money, not take the money? Response of Professor Goldish that you brought down. Protestants who send money to poor Jews in the land of Israel, land of Israel, Palestine, mid-17th centuries. What 7th century? What does this response teach us about Jewish-Christian relations back then? So, um, as you say, today, this is still a huge topic. And um, you have everything from uh, people who say that the, the Christian money is absolutely puzzle and, and you shouldn't touch it and so on, to um, people like uh, our uh, uh, friend and, um, and, and honored uh, rabbi from Columbus, Ohio, Tuli Weiss, who now uh, lives in Israel and runs a whole organization uh, involving Christians and Jews working together on Zionist causes. 
uh, it runs the gamut. Well, apparently that was the case back then too. So uh, what happened is that uh, uh, Jews would lend uh, these uh, Christian uh, monks and uh, uh, functionaries uh, who would cycle in and, and out from Europe and, uh, and presumably the Byzantine and later Ottoman empires, right, to oversee the holy places in the land of Israel and so on. Uh, they would lend them money and the money at interest because Jews would do that uh, for Christians. And um, uh, somebody uh, comes along and says, uh, you shouldn't be doing that. Their, their money is, is tainted, essentially, right? You're, you're making money from people uh, uh, in the Holy Land, um, right, running Christian organizations and, and supporting their Christian worship and so on. And th this shouldn't be permissible. And uh, essentially, the prosaic, as, as I recall it in that case, says, you know, these are these uh, hot-headed, young, new, you know, right-wing uh, rabbis who are coming in who don't understand the situation. They don't realize that this is the way that it's been done since time immemorial. And uh, it's not right. Uh, this is the way it's been done. Nobody has had a problem with it before, and you shouldn't have a problem with it now. And he gives the explanation about why. And uh, so um, uh, that uh, posik uh, permitted it. Apparently, that was a practice uh, that went on for hundreds of years. Um, all I know, it still goes on, but all I know. Uh, so there, there are other cases which also give you a sense about these types of relationships. The um, uh, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, has a, uh, a responsum, which is in, the, in my collection there, um, where uh, somebody lends money to a Christian, uh, right? The, the way that money lending worked is essentially like a pawn shop today, right? Where somebody brings a picadon, uh, you know, some kind of an object, uh, which is held by the Jew until the money is returned. And in this case, it was uh, a... Uh, it was a medallion, uh, a, uh, a some kind of a, a Christian birth medallion uh, that um, had very, very clear Christian uh, implications. And I guess the person never returned the money and the Jew is stuck with this thing. He wants to know whether he can sell it or whether he can get Hanab from it, right? Whether he can gain advantage from it. Uh, the way he needs to 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 recoup his money, uh, so um, right. Some of the rabbis are stricter on this. Some of them are less strict in that way. It's no different than uh, Jewish legal decision making today, where we, we tend to get a range. But I'd say overall, the the Sephardi post game are again more kind of practical and. Um, uh, are willing to uh, use use the breadth of uh, uh, of decision making options uh, sometimes um, in ways that the Ashkenazim today tend not to want to do. Um, and in conclusion, uh, what's the message um, that you give to Ohio State Buckeyes? Correct, Is it, you're the Buckeyes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Ohio State Buckeye students, as you try to teach them have a look at responsa in, 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 in speaking to the young students that, that you educate. How do you, how do you position it? What's the message? I, I am going to apologize now for the answer I'm going to give you. Um, I don't teach this material to the Ohio State students. Okay. Uh, I am, here at Ohio State, I am largely out of the Jewish history business uh, because um, my my courses don't necessarily fill in that field. Um, so uh, when I discuss this material with students, it's usually adults uh, in various uh, contexts of adult education or, uh, uh, for example, the Spurtis graduate uh, uh, program where I, I sometimes have the opportunity to teach a little bit. Uh, um, yeah. And what's your presentation? What's your presentation there? So, I uh, I was trained at the Hebrew University, and uh, and before that, I was trained at the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva, 
those are both institutions which are well known for very close textual analysis. And uh, that is what I like. That is what I enjoy. So uh, I will make people go word by word and sentence by sentence, parsing uh, implications, the use of this word versus that word, uh, the historical context, which would give uh, rise to uh, this expression or that question and so on. Uh, so that's um, that is that is what I love to do. It means you move extremely slowly through the material. Uh, but anybody who's familiar with, especially with the time yeshiva, knows that that's what they do. <laughs> Again, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, Jewish questions, uh, response on Sephardic life in the early modern period. Professor Matt Goldish, and again, urge all our viewers and listeners to go online and purchase it. You get a real taste. And, and beyond this, there are thousands upon thousands of responses for us to parse and, yes. and, and take our time in studying. Professor Goldish, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Ari. Thank you so much.